Welcome to Cincy Reformed. I'm Pastor Brandon. And today I wanted to talk about education. It's something that occupies my mind as of late. And so I've been just thinking about the evolution of education. I've been thinking about how um, how different ideas have taken hold in different time periods. And even as I look at education, uh, even in America and around the world, you see different influences of different thought, different philosophies, different theories and ideas, and how those are now coming to play, and we can see those in the classroom. And so what I wanted to do in this podcast episode is to highlight just a few of the educational theories that that are out there, but I want to highlight four of them in in, in order to give kind of a good sampling of what's, what's out there in terms of what people are saying about education. And then I want to offer some Christian interaction with that. How, how do we, uh, how would we respond to some of these theories that are out there? And the first theory that I want to talk about is called progressivism. The educational progressives have often looked to philosophical pragmatists such as John Dewey, and they've really kind of built around the insights of these pragmatic philosophers. And John Dewey is kind of the big, the big guy for the for the pragmatist, for the progressive. Uh, they're going to look to John Dewey and to his writings. And even today, if you talk to teachers, they probably have interacted with John Dewey. Um, John Dewey has really shaped the landscape in American public education. So getting into the progressive theory of education, uh, let's start first by kind of looking big picture. What do the progressives believe about ultimate reality? Well, the progressives, especially as you get into John Dewey, very naturalistic in how they view reality. Uh, Reality is something that is unknown, but it can be manipulated and used via science. And some of the progressives would argue that there are no absolutes. There's no absolute principles that reality can can change or be changed. Um, some have kind of given into a grand scheme of macro-Darwinian e- evolution. And that's kind of what they view in terms of the big picture. Uh, regarding knowledge, like human knowledge, they believe that we can, humans can gain knowledge, and that the scientific method is the primary way in which we can do this. We can do experimentation, and we can um, learn through empirical research, and uh, again, experimentation is, is a big method and tool for the, for the progressive. The mind is not seen as something that's passive, but in fact is very active. It's engaging the environment, it's solving problems, it's adapting. Uh, the brain is diagnosing things, uh, analyzing, and um, so the brain is very active. So th- and that's going to be a key component to what the progressives will say later on regarding, um, regarding education. 
When it comes to viewing the pupil, the progressives would say the student is actually in the driver's seat. The student is, you know, armed with the scientific method, unshackled by tradition and the dead wood, the dead baggage of the past, unshackled by, by the religious stuff and the traditional stuff, armed again with that scientific method. The, 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 the pupil is able to fix problems by manipulating our environment. Students are active and engaged. The students naturally desire, desire to learn. They want to learn when they are not manipulated by adults. They want to be free. So stop the adult manipulation. Regarding the teacher, then, for the progressive, the teacher is a guide, a facilitator, a chaperone. The teacher is someone that helps the students pursue their interests to, um, to grow their abilities. The, the teacher is not an authoritarian. Uh, the teacher rather constructs an environment within the classroom that will be able to help the child maximize their experience, their growth, their learning. Regarding the curriculum and the method that's being used here in the progressive um, paradigm, the child's interests drives the curriculum. The scope and sequence of, of what is taught is shaped largely by the pupil himself or herself. Now, there are some things that every student will need to will, will need to know. I think John Dewey would say that. John Dewey would say there are some key things that must be known, but the way in which he wants them known is by allowing students to explore, to do experiments, to have kind of this natural uh, curiosity about them where they can solve problems. In fact, one of John Dewey's predecessors, Kilpatrick, he developed this kind of project-based learning where the, the pupil does a project that involves a whole host of academic disciplines. I mean, if you think about cooking, for example, uh, you can weave in chemistry, you can weave in the arts, you could weave in a whole, a whole host of subjects, even in the one project. And so uh, you often see in progressive classrooms a more open concept where the child is in the driver's seat, armed with natural curiosity, the scientific method, uh, doing projects, gaining understanding by being in the real world and engaging the environment. And so regarding the social kind of outlook of the progressive theory of education, they're going to be very critical of religion and tradition. Uh, they're going to be excited about scientific thinking and technology, math and science. That's going to be a, a key thing here. Not that Dewey was anti-history or anything like that, uh, but that he, you know, math and science are going to be vehicles by which we make progress. And uh, the progressive is hopeful for progress, a forward m movement where we can uh, shape society and bring about something better. In fact, uh, John Dewey wanted the schools to shape the family, that if you could design a school and a school to be a microcosm of society— then the children going to that school will in turn shape their family. 
and would be kind of social activists in a way, changing、uh, society for、uh, for the better in terms of whatever they believe that is. So that's pragmatism. And there were a few responses to pragmatism. You know, as pragmatism was was getting、um, was kind of growing in the early to mid 1900s, there were a few responses where people said, "I don't think that's really good. I don't think that's educating people. I think it's it's hurting society, not helping society." And so a few responses came to be. One of the responses was from the perennialists. Now the perennialists believed that permanence is more real than change, and so the perennialists is going to honor those ideas that are, you could say, time honored. They've stood this. They've stood the test of time.、Uh, they have been embedded in our culture, and they are going to look to those ideas. Uh, they believe、uh, in the human mind. They emphasize reason. Reason is a big thing for the perennialist, and they focus on knowledge that is universally consent、uh, consented. And it's been、um, uh, for around for a long time, cross cultural, cross uh, uh, continent. They're going to focus on the great works of the past and try to develop and shape and sharpen the ability of the human mind to reason. And they look greatly back to the neo-scholastics, and、uh, that's a big thing for the perennialists. When it comes to the the pupil, the perennialist says that humans are rational. Human nature is consistent, and so they focus on teaching universal knowledge. That should be learned by all people. Regarding the teacher, the teacher then in the classroom is not a chaperone or a guide like like the progressives. For the perennialist, the teacher is the subject matter expert who will teach with authority, mentor the students through all of the great works of the past. When it comes to the curriculum, then in education, for the perennialist, the subject matter. Not the child should stand at the center of education. The great works of the past should be learned because they've stood the test of time.、Uh, the school is not to be a microcosm of larger society like the progressives wanted it to be, but it should provide an experience to prepare for life in society after school. And、uh, regarding kind of its social function and social impact, the perennialists encourage secondary higher education.、Uh, they per- they emphasized a kind of that、uh, liberal arts education to develop that rational intellect. Within perennialism, there's a conservative thrust that wants to to go back and to educate the way in which it was done in the past.、Uh, among per- per- perennialists, you'll find those who、uh, really prize the the trivium that was used in ancient、uh, Greece and Rome and onward, and and so the perennialists are wanting to. Go back and shape the human mind according to the great minds of the past, in order to be any good in the present. So that's the that's the perennialist again responding to the pragmatists. But there was another response to the pragmatists, and that was the essentialists. 
Regarding the students, then, with essentialism, the students must learn basic knowledge in order to function in civilized society. And so you, you can kind of guess with their name, they are the essentialists, meaning that they want to go back to the essentials. What is essential to functioning in society? Uh, give them that. The, the pupils' uh, desire should not be catered to like the progressives, but they need to, to conform to the world as it really is. There's an objective world out there. There are essentials that you, you need to know to navigate it. And the world's not going to conform to you like the progressives are, are, are wanting to do in the classroom. Rather, you must conform to the objective world. In the essentialist view of things, the teacher is not a fellow learner or guide. Rather, the teacher is one who knows what the students need to know and is well acquainted with kind of the logical order, the subject matter, the way in which it, it should be presented, and they're going to do that into the classroom. Um, regarding, the, uh, regarding the curriculum with the essentialists, the essentialists wanted to get back to the basics. They, they wanted to teach the core knowledge uh, the three R's, you know, writing, reading, arithmetic. Some of them wanted to bring back a fourth R, religion, and kind of add religion back into kind of the basic structure of the three R's in order to bring some moral teaching to the classroom. Uh, but they also said, you know, educating non-essentials is not the business of schools. If it's non-essential, the school shouldn't do it. If you want to take tap dancing lessons or do something like that, do that after school hours. And they did believe, like the progressives, that some things can be learned through projects and, and that kind of thing, but they did um, prize learning by memorization, by drilling. Uh, where per the perennialists kind of focused on higher education, the essentialists really focused and hammered home on on the elementary and the secondary levels. And um, sometimes the essentialists viewed the perennialists as maybe too intellectual. They're wanting to go back to, to the great books and to philosophy, to Latin perhaps. And essentialists are just wanting to kind of, what's the core thing? What's the basics? Uh, give them that and send them out into the world. Regarding the social impact of the essentialists, well, like the perennialists, the essentialists were a conservative movement and, again, reacting to the progressive agenda by wanting to get back to the basics and to instill the core knowledge into, into children uh, so that they could be functioning people in society. So that is the essentialists. And the last one that I want to discuss is the Reconstructivists. Reconstructivists or Reconstructivism. Reconstructivism has a very naturalistic worldview, but emphasizes the phenomena of culture. It's looking at society and, and culture. They believed that the human mind uh, kind of developed as, as a group, you know, kind of a group mind rather than an individual mind. They did not believe in ultimate truths, but rather social truths that are germane to each culture. 
And the process of knowing is kind of this natural phenomenon of the brain as we're interacting collectively in society. When it came to the the children, the pupils, the reconstructivists believe that the student is both shaped by culture and is also shaping culture. So the student must see himself as active, maybe even an activist, you might say, as a rescuer of democracy. And they have to have that goal in mind of what they need to be doing. So teachers then are the architects of this new social order that can direct curriculum to the preference of the student and how to then again shape culture, to impact culture through writing, through protesting, through being involved, uh, through sharing ideas and being active on social media, etc., So the curriculum here with the uh, Reconstructivists can be a bit fluid, and again, it must be designed with the goal of changing society. And so they will emphasize uh, things like social sciences, economics, sociology, political science, psychology. Those are going to be heavily emphasized uh, because those are great tools in which you can engage culture. Regarding the social impact of um, of this of this theory, uh, you know, it, it, it obviously prized activism, activism in society as the kind of the goal of humanity. We should be shaping culture. We should be active. We should be out there proclaiming and out there moving and shaking and, and doing these things and being involved politically and in groups and in subgroups. And um, and that should kind of be what humanity does. We should identify problems in society and then seek ways to fix those problems, and that is the marching order then of education. So it's interesting, you know, as we survey just four of the theories of education out there, and I'm sure, you know, as we were talking about them, you could perhaps uh, resonate where perhaps your experience was in one of those camps or another, or perhaps a mix, a blending of, of two of those camps or more. But I wanted to now look at it through a Christian lens. And from a biblical perspective, as we look at the progressives, the progressives wrongly promote autonomy, this kind of radical autonomy where we're unshackled from the Bible, we're unshackled from religion, we're unshackled from tradition, and we have this radical autonomy. The student is, is not conforming to an authority. The student is the authority. He has, or she has, the uh, the tools of the scientific method, and we're going to create an environment based solely around the student, so that the student can grow and do whatever he or she wants to to do. Now there are parameters, and John Dewey would set some of those parameters as well. But we we have to note in progressivism, there's a radical autonomy. That sees the cosmos, the world, as uncreated. It's natural. It uh, hasn't been created by, by, uh, by a god or anything like that. And there's no truths that are just intrinsic. There's no, um, what, what Dewey would say, there's no a priori truths that are going to somehow come out of a moral Mount Sinai. 
No, there's this uncreated world. There's these random facts, and the uh, world is being governed by by chance, but also by various laws. And the human mind can gather all of these facts together and give meaning to all of these facts and bring all of these facts together in a right way in order to manipulate our surroundings for the betterment of the democracy. Now, regarding a few things that that the progressives perhaps got right, maybe some common grace insights, would be that the the progressives wanting to do projects and have kind of multiple disciplines come to bear on a single project. And that shows that they had a view that multiple subjects could actually come together. There could be an integration, an interrelationship of the various disciplines. Now, we believe the same thing as Christians, but for different reasons. We don't believe that the human mind is this grand organizer doing it all and that we're just radically autonomous in this chance-based world. No, we believe that God has unified everything. And so God is unifying everything and has given meaning to everything. God has interpreted everything, and everything fits together perfectly. Everything's interrelated because of God. And so we too believe that you know, as we're doing as we're doing one subject, we can bring we can bring multiple subjects to bear in our interaction with the one thing because the world is God's world. And it's interrelated. It is a unity. So that's something that we would uh, want to affirm, but for different reasons than the than the progressive. Something else that the progressives were onto is they really wanted they they didn't want students children to be bored in a classroom looking at books. And now I do believe that the progressives go a little bit too far here where they almost say you should never memorize anything. And they will go so far as to say in many in many cases don't ever use a textbook. And only be active. Don't go to the library. And so you kind of get that feel in some progressive corners where everything is so pushed in the active realm that they don't want to um, uh, engage the mind in any sort of rigorous way in terms of rote memorization. As, as Christians, you know, we catechize our children. We we do things with, with regard to rote memory and we uh, so... And we love books and love libraries, and we think that textbooks are a great thing. Uh, but at the same time, it is a good reminder that as we're teaching, it shouldn't be a dry thing. We need to be engaging our our children. We should try to engage them in such a way that they desire to learn and want to grow in knowledge and encourage them in that. We don't have to go the progressive route in order to do this, but it is a a good reminder for us that um, as we have a great curriculum, as we have great teachers, we need to make sure that we're teaching in such a way that is wooing the hearts of those who are who are in our classroom. So that's how we might view a progressive view of education from a Christian perspective. Now the perennialist. 
You know, the perennialist is the one who wants to go back to the great books, to the time-honored truths, uh, rigorous, you know, emphasizing reason, uh, developing the mind, uh, kind of aimed at that higher education. And there's a lot of great things here. And I think Christians, we, uh, we, we, we can see some overlap. We, too, like the the great books and like the uh, to to learn the history of thought in terms of what people have said and and old poets and old philosophies and there's benefit to that we see people in the Bible for example for for example uh, being able to interact we see uh, Moses being educated under the Egyptians we see Daniel being educated uh, in Babylon we see Paul quoting pagan poets because he knows them and he's able to quote them in an evangelistic encounter. <clears throat> so I think that we can sympathize with the perennialists in that uh, learning the great books, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, we like that. The problem, though, with the perennialists is that they want to make the past the authority. And so, so, and so sometimes the perennialists can say, well, the Bible is only maybe one of many authorities. Maybe it's a co-authority. Uh, maybe it's it's one of the great books. And so we like the Bible, but we also like Plato and Aristotle, and we also like Shakespeare and Homer. And so the perennialist is going to look to the past sometimes in a heightened way that makes the past the standard rather than, than the Bible the standard. And so that's going to be a problem. The perennialist as well sometimes viewed the student as just a, a brain on a stick, in a way, where there's this heightened emphasis on reason and, and uh, rigorous mental developments, but it could neglect other aspects as well. Some other pitfalls of perennialism might also be that they can sometimes view reason as an equal authority with the Bible, as though reason has a, has an is an authoritative category um, that somehow stands in equal footing with Scripture, which is not the case. The Bible uh, is to set the boundaries for our reasoning. Uh, another area where the perennialist can go wrong is devaluing the effects of the fall on the human mind. So some per perennialists will devalue the noetic effect of sin on the human brain when Adam sinned. And um, we have now unregenerate reason and regenerate reason. We have people reasoning who are dead in sin and not born again. You have those reasoning who are born again and are re being renewed in their mind. And so those are two very different types of reasoning. And sometimes the perennialist can kind of view reason as this kind of category that doesn't have the distinctions or see how the fall has affected us. And uh, uh, one more thing that the perennialist can sometimes fall into is believing that reason and knowledge and these things is just kind of neutral, that there's this neutrality. And 
Um, that's just not the case. There is no neutrality. There is distinct worldviews, and sometimes perennialists can gloss over that by thinking that um, the human mind reasoning on something is just a neutral thing, uh, that our minds are somehow a blank slate or something like that, and uh, that the subject matter that we're looking at is just neutral, and everybody agrees on it. And, of course, there are going to be proximate similarities uh, between different worldviews as we look at something, some academic discipline. But we're not going to agree all the way down. And so sometimes the perennialists can gloss over that. Regarding the essentialists, the essentialists wanted to go back to the essentials. But, again, what are the essentials and who says they are the essentials? Well, for the essentialists, it's, it's usually society. But what society? Well, a lot of the essentialists kind of might look back to the recent good old days, um, perhaps in, in, in the grandparents' era. Or that they might look to, well, as I'm, as I'm surveying the world, I mean, what, what have I needed to know in my job? And it's been the, the three R's, and it's been the very basic things, and we should just instruct in the basics. And they should do that. Why? Well, the essentialist says to better fit society. You should know the essentials for the good of society. Well, as a Christian... We would say that we should um, learn to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And also the way in which some of the essentialists wanting to make that fourth R, religion, kind of mixed in with the other, other three R's, there really wasn't an integration of, of, of God, of theology. Instead, they kind of added religion, sprinkled some religion on a very secular program. Rather than having theology the unifying center of the entire program, uh, they didn't want to do that, and so they kind of added it uh, to it. And so uh, that's going to be a problem, I think, for the Christian. And also there is a simplistic uh, attitude, uh, even a anti-intellectual attitude, that can happen in the essentialists, where they just want to kind of stay to the simple things, the basic things, so they're not necessarily going to be excited about to challenge our minds, to, um, to grow, to learn hard things, to know complicated things, and they're going to maybe kind of say, well, that's, that's not the essentials. And perhaps those, those heavily intellectual things well, that's, that's going to be a non-essential that you can do after school. So there's going to be an anti-intellectualism with the essentialist movement as well. And then finally, regarding Reconstruction, that wants to see school as shaping activists that will go and protest and do things in society and change culture. Um, their outlook is, is largely godless. It's a naturalistic uh, they, they don't believe in creation. They believe that society is relative. It, there, there's no absolute truth, really. Just kind of whatever society says, and we should just keep shaping it. 
and society shaped us and we're going to shape it. And it's kind of this back and forth shaping where no one is really ultimately true or ultimately arrived at final goodness or final truth or final beauty, but rather education is flattened into just doing rather than learning what God has to teach us. Uh, Instead of being educated to be well-rounded humans, they would say be educated to change and know how to do it. And so, you know, as we're thinking about education as Christians, it's helpful to understand kind of the, the, the landscape and the theories and the ideas behind education because we see them everywhere. We see um, these various schools of thought in not only public schools, but private schools and even in homeschool um, curriculum and materials. And so we should be aware as we're interacting with the various uh, options open for us to, to, to educate our children, we should be aware of how some of these theories are shaping um, the very curriculum and the very school and the very ideas behind these in- institutions, uh, we should be mindful of, of these ideas. And, and we should also be encouraged to go back to the Bible and allow the Scripture to shape us and to ask God, you know, what is education? What is the standard of education? It's the Bible. What is the goal of education? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Who is the pupil in in education? Someone made in the image of God. Who is the teacher? Someone who is mature, called by God to shepherd young, young people. What is the curriculum? The curriculum is, is something that's going to engage God's world by keeping special revelation, the Bible, natural revelation, nature, together at every point. And so as families are kind of rethinking school choices and education, and now there's more uh, more doors are being opened to school choices and, and opportunities, let us be mindful. Let us go back to the Bible. Let us think God's thoughts after him and to be to be wise about this because... God cares about the education of our children, and so let's be mindful in this. I hope this episode was helpful in giving kind of a taxonomy of some of the views that are out there and how a Christian might think through them. A few books that I would like to recommend to you, if you're wanting more on kind of, you know, what's all of these theories out there and how can we interact with them and what what do do Christians believe about them, uh, I would recommend to you George Knight's book. George Knight wrote a book called Philosophy and Education, an Introduction in Christian Perspective, and it's up to the fourth edition now, but uh, just a phenomenal book where he goes through all of the different theories, all of, of the different views, many of which we did not even cover today. For example, behaviorism, postmodernism and modernism, and idealism, and existentialism, and realism, and, and all of these other views, and he kind of, he, he maps them out in a very simple way that's easy to understand, and then he gives a Christian response in a way that is critical, but also looks for uh, common grace insights where we might agree. Another book that I would recommend is by Donald Oppowall. And it's called Voices from the Past, Reformed Educators. 
And this book is actually a compilation of various Reformed people talking about education. And sometimes they have some disagreements even amongst themselves, but it's interesting to see how have uh, Reformed Christians of the past viewed education. And what have they said? And this is a great compilation of Reformed educators in the past. And finally, my favorite book on education is called Essays on Christian Education, and it is by Cornelius Van Til. I think that is probably the best book. It's a dense book. It's a little bit of a difficult read, but it is a worthwhile book um, because it really goes back to what does God say about education? How do we learn? How are we meant to learn? And how should we then educate? And so I think it's a very a very helpful read that I would commend to you. I will link those books in the show notes page, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Mm-hmm.